Ladies and gentlemen, dear colleagues and friends, it's a tremendous honor and privilege to be here and talk about caveats in the interpretation of clinical research. I have no conflicts of interest. I'm going to start with a question. Who is this person? That's actually myself four days ago, Sunday morning. I was laying on my uh, preferred, my uh, favorite couch, uh, reading my favorite newspaper, having an excellent cup of coffee. My kids, and this is rather exceptional, were for once playing nicely, so I was having a good time. But then I hear a bling, and um, I get an email from Professor Eric van Kutzem at 9.19 a.m., and uh, it says, Dear Ulrich, I hate to uh, ask you so late, but one of our speakers, Dr. Lindsay Renfro, is unable to come to Barcelona. Do you think you could replace her with your expertise? Kind regards, Eric. Then I was a bit nervous for a second. So how am I going to present, or how am I going to set up a, a presentation within four days? But then I wrote back about half an hour later, Dear Eric, I'm happy to step in. So, Eric, if you're in the audience and you think this stepping in uh, deserves a small token of appreciation, I like red wine, particularly the one from southern Italy. Well, humor aside, it's a tremendous honor and privilege to be here, and I'll be talking about the five topics. Um, absolute versus relative risk, number need to treat, subset or subgroup analysis, the difference between clinical relevance and statistical significance and confounding. Why did I choose these topics? Number one, they're extremely important. And number two, they're very, very prevalent in the scientific literature. So I'll start with a question. You guys, you are the CEO of a big pharmaceutical company. And you have this new vaccine that halves the risk of a particular infection, decreases the risk of a particular infection by 50%. Is that important, yes or no? Let me see a show of hands. Who thinks this is important? Who thinks it's not important? That's a fair number of undecided people in the room, but the correct answer is it depends on the prevalence of the disease. If the risk in unvaccinated persons is two out of 10 million, then only one out of 10 million could be spared the infection by vaccinating all 10 million people. What is the relative risk reduction in this example? It's 50%. It's still 50% relative risk reduction. <laughs> relative risk reduction, just uh, in parenthesis, is one minus the relative risk. Risk <laughs> group one divided by risk in group two. But what is the absolute risk reduction in this example? And the absolute risk reduction is risk in group one minus risk in group two. You'll get all these slides. You don't need to take notes. Um, so the absolute risk reduction in this example is two out of 10 million minus one out of 10 million. It's one out of 10 million. And what is the number needed to treat? Well, the number needed to treat, this is the number of patients who must be treated to prevent one bad, one adverse event. And, and this is the beauty, this is the most important slide I'm gonna show this morning. The number needed to treat is the inverse of the absolute risk reduction. So in this example, the number needed to treat, you take the inverse of the absolute risk reduction, and it's 10 million. The point, ladies and gentlemen, the point I wanna make here uh, this morning is you can have a very, very substantial relative risk reduction with a very small absolute risk reduction and a huge number needed to treat. 
So number theory to treat is an extremely valuable statistical tool to evaluate the clinical importance of a certain result. And again, a large relative difference can be associated with a very small absolute difference. And hence, I always tell my residents, look at the absolute difference and ask yourself if this absolute difference is of any clinical relevance. I want to give another example from the IDEA study. Fantastic, fantastic trial. Um, you all know, you're all very familiar with the IDEA study designs for stage three colon cancer patients uh, who were randomized one to one to three months of adjuvant chemotherapy versus six months of adjuvant chemotherapy, Capox or Folfox. <laughs> and the primary endpoint was disease-free survival at three years. And this is the, the, the Kaplan-Meier curves of the overall uh, patient population. And you can see that the absolute risk reduction in the IDEA trial was 0.9%. So three months of adjuvant chemotherapy, very, very similar to six months of adjuvant chemotherapy. Now, what is the number needed to treat here? And again, it's very, very simple, and I really wanna, I want you to take this home with you and use it in your clinical practice. It's the inverse of the absolute risk reduction, and it's 111. That means you need to treat 111 patients with six months of chemotherapy instead of three months with the associated toxicity to prevent one recurrence at three years. Next topic is subgroup or subset analysis. And Professor Peter Slay from Oxford, very brilliant mind, once said, subgroup analysis in clinical trials, they're fun to look at, but don't believe them. And there's an uh, interesting example. Uh, it was published in The Lancet about 30 years ago. It was a randomized trial in patients with uh, suspected acute myocardial infarction. So randomized controlled trial with over 17,000 patients with suspected acute myocardial infarction. They were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to aspirin uh, PO daily versus placebo. And the result showed a statistically significantly decreased mortality in the aspirin group. So this result was, was clear-cut, statistically significant and clinically relevant decrease in mortality in patients with suspected acute myocardial infarction who did take, who were randomized to the aspirin arm. And this uh, paper was published. But then the authors get a letter to the editor. And in this letter to the editor, um, the, 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 those who wrote this letter to the editor said, please publish more subgroup analysis. Now the authors who were very familiar uh, with the, the fallacy of subset or subgroup analysis, they looked at the star signs of the patients. They had the date of birth of all 17,000 patients. They looked at the star signs, and they showed that patients who were born as Libra or Gemini had no benefit whatsoever from aspirin. This is really a, a very good and very obvious example how subgroup analysis can be fallacious. So be careful about subgroup analysis. There's data torture. If an overall trial is negative, then you look at subset, a variety of subset data torture, data massaging, we call it. Subgroup analysis or results from subgroup analysis are hypothesis generating rather than hypothesis testing. And of course, the more statistical tests you run, the more likely you're gonna be to get a statistically significant result. This is a, a table on the left. You see the number of statistical tests run. 
On the right, you see the chances of getting a positive result by chance alone. And you can see if you run five tests, you have about a 22% chance of getting a statistically significant result by chance alone. If you do run 10 tests, this chance is 40%. So again, be very careful about the interpretation or over-interpretation of subset analysis. If you do have subset analysis, you may want to correct uh, for multiple testing using Bonferroni or other statistical tools. If you do do subgroup analysis, it's key to define them a priori. And the idea, again, is a beautiful example of how, how this was done correctly. This was, while, while the protocol was written up, AS subgroup analysis were defined low risk versus high risk patients, full FOX versus KPOX. That's how it should be done. And only look at relevant subgroup analysis. Now, the next topic I'm going to briefly cover is the difference between clinical versus statistical significance. Now remember, if the sample size is large, even tiny differences between study groups will become statistically significant. And the question, of course, the question you ought to ask yourself, are these differences of any clinical relevance? Conversely, even though the p-value may not be statistically significant, due to a small sample size, for instance, the differences found between the study groups may appear to be clinically relevant. I want to give you a few examples. This is a, a publication in JCO about 10 years ago. It's from the Princess Margaret Torontonian group. And this was a randomized uh, controlled trial in patients with advanced pancreatic cancer. And these patients were one-to-one -one randomized to gemcitabine, which was the standard of care at that time, versus gemcitabine plus erlotinib. And the primary endpoint was overall survival. So a trial was performed. And the median overall survival in the gemcitabine group was 5.91 months versus the median overall survival in the gemcitabine erlotinib group was 6.24 months. Is that difference of any clinical relevance? Yes or no? Who thinks it's clinically relevant? Who thinks it's not clinically relevant? The vast majority thinks it's not clinically relevant. I fully agree. This is not clinically relevant difference. It's about 0.33 months, about 10 days. That doesn't, doesn't make any, any difference. However, this was a relatively large trial with a relatively big sample size, almost 600 patients, and the p-value turned out to be statistically significant. So this is a good example how a result can be statistically significant, but it's not clinically relevant. I want to give you another example. This is a hypothetical example. I computed that at home on my computer. Let's say we're performing a randomized controlled trial in stage 3 colon cancer patients, and we're randomizing them to 5-FU of adjuvant treatment versus Folfox. And let's say that the primary endpoint is disease-free survival at 5 years. And let's say we find a difference of disease-free survival, 40% in the 5-FU leucovorin group, 60% disease-free survival at 5 years in the Folfox group. So there's a difference of 20%. Is this clinically relevant? I think the vast majority of us would say this, this is clinically relevant, difference of 20%. However, if we have less than 146 patients in our trial, this large clinically relevant difference will not be statistically significant. So remember, a result can very well be statistically significant, 
but not clinically relevant, and vice versa. And remember that the sample size is a major driver of the p-value. If your sample size is large, even tiny irrelevant differences will become statistically significant. Now, last topic I want to cover is confounding. Confounding is an extremely important topic. It's extremely prevalent in the medical literature. Now, prior to defining confounding, I want to define what a predictor variable and an outcome is. This is extremely basic. This is very, very simple. A predictor variable, sometimes also called independent variable, is the variable that we control, diagnostic or a therapeutic intervention. And the outcome is what we measure. Overall survival, disease for survival, progression, free survival, and so on and so forth. Now, a confounding variable, how do you define a confounding variable? A confounding variable is an extrinsic factor which is linked to the predictor and impacts the outcome. I'll give you a very simple and very intuitive example. There's good compelling evidence that patients who carry matches do have an increased risk of dying of lung cancer. It's, it's very obvious, it's very clear that carrying matches in of itself is not dangerous. So the obvious confounder here is smoking. Patients who carry matches, they're usually smokers, and smoking, we all know, impacts the risk of getting lung cancer. Now, what can you do if you have confounding in your own study? You can stratify. If you stratify by the confounder, by smoking, carrying matches will no longer be associated with increased risk of getting lung cancer. However, if you have many confounders, stratification becomes cumbersome. If you have one confounder, you have two strata. With two confounders, you have four strata. With three confounders, you have eight strata. And this increases exponentially. And hence, if you have many confounders, to perform a multivariable analysis is really the way to go. Multivariable analysis provides the risk-adjusted impact of the predictive variable on the outcome after controlling, after risk-adjusting for putative confounding factors. I want to give you an example. Let's say we're performing an observational type of study comparing open versus laparoscopic abdominal perineal resection for low-lying rectal cancer. And the endpoint is overall survival, and the primary predictor is the technique, laparoscopic versus open APR. So here's the setting. Laparoscopic versus open abdominal perineal resection, primary predictor variable. Overall survival is the primary outcome. And let's say we're performing this study, and we'll see that patients in the laparoscopic group, this is the black line, patients in the laparoscopic group, they have a significantly best, be better overall survival compared to patients in the open APR group. I'm asking you, can we be sure now that laparoscopic surgery is superior to the open technique? The answer is no. So it's very well possible that in the laparoscopic group, we have the good patients with early stage disease, with well-differentiated cancers, young and healthy patients. Whereas in the open APR group, we have the bad patients with advanced disease, with poorly differentiated cancer, old comorbid patients. And all these factors, age, comorbidity, stage, grading, are confounders in the relationship of the primary predictor, laparoscopic versus open APR, and the outcome, overall survival. So it's key to, to look for confounding. Often you find in the, in the medical literature, you find highly statistically significant associations between a predictive variable and an outcome. Always ask yourself, is it possible that this association may be 
confounded. So look out for confounding. I conclude. Relative versus absolute difference. Remember, a large relative difference can be associated with a very small absolute difference. Number needed to treat is an extremely valuable statistical tool to evaluate the clinical importance of a certain result. And number needed to treat, and this is key, I want you to take this home with you in your clinical practice, the number needed to treat is the inverse of the absolute risk reduction, can be computed very simply. Beware of subset analysis. And remember, p-value of 0.05 is not sacred. A statistically significant result may very well be clinically irrelevant and vice versa. And look out for confounding. Well, I always say when I give a talk about statistics, learning about statistics is like climbing a mountain. You look up, the way it looks long, the way it looks steep. To climb this mountain, you need skills, you need strength, and you need perseverance. <clears throat> However, once you're on top, ladies and gentlemen, the view is magnificent. Thank you very much.